Welcome to the Friday q and I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I try to help you learn how to think biblically about everything. That doesn't mean that I think perfectly biblically about everything, but it is definitely like a major life obsession and goal of mine. And one of those goals is to equip others to do the same thing. And so I'm taking your questions today in the live chat. The first question that I've chosen ahead of time that was sent in by one of the viewers is um, married couples. It, it, well, the big question is this, um, should we be fruitful and multiply? Is that command in Genesis still applicable to us today? Be fruitful and multiply. And I think to really, the hardest part of this question for me is, should married couples, should it be considered okay for them to just choose not to have kids at all? Um, so not just single people, married people. That's the hardest part. But I'm going to try to walk through several of these issues today. And while we're doing that, you're loading your questions. We're getting the rest of the, the other 19. So I'll do 20 questions today as always. This is actually the last live, uh, live stream that I have planned for 2020. Definitely the last Friday Q&A. The next one will be January 1st. I will do a New Year's Day one. I'll try to make that special somehow. I'll brainstorm on what we can do to make that special. But yeah, this is this is the last live stream I have at least scheduled, unless I, on a whim, throw something else together. We will see. That may happen. At any rate, married couples not having kids at all. Okay, the command is in Genesis chapter 1. Most of us are familiar with it, but it helps to look at it because sometimes what we're familiar with, we don't pay attention to. So Genesis 1.28, it says, and God blessed them. And this is his statement to Adam and Eve. And by extension, I think it does apply to all mankind. But let's think about how. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. And he has dominion over all the living things that live on the earth. And so be fruitful and multiply. That's the command. Um, it involves multiple things, as you'll notice. It involves having kids. It also involves filling the earth. So filling the earth. Now, the word earth back there, it that could just mean the area um, it, or it could mean the globe. But because the context here says have dominion over the fish and the birds and over every living thing that moves on the earth, the, the impression is that there aren't really boundaries to this command to fill the earth. Go ahead, Antarctica, you know, wherever, <laughs> go wherever you want. And um, it does involve that. So having kids, filling the earth, subduing the earth, as in you're in charge of the earth, that's actually a good thing. Biblically speaking, it's good that humans are on the top of the food chain, that they're in charge, just like it's good that your kids have more authority than your pets and they probably should right maybe maybe when they're two it's different but not when they're like 13 um, they have they have certainly more authority than your pets that's appropriate that's right this is not parasitic evil human beings taking over things they shouldn't uh, no we're given the earth to have dominion over it so my first conclusion Genesis 1. I'm going to try to move through this kind of quickly. I could spend a whole video on this, an hour-long video on this one issue, but I'll try to move kind of quick so I can get to your guys' questions as well. And welcome if you're just joining us now. We're asking a question of, if uh, is be fruitful and multiply, does that apply to each individual person? And if so, like how? So my first conclusion is this. This is a command given to mankind that should apply to mankind, but that if you try to apply it to each individual of humankind, all of us, then I think you make a mistake. Right, God has some people that are just infertile, like they can't. So then you're you're going to suggest that they're rebelling against this command. So if you try to apply it to each person, I think you're making a mistake. But if you apply it broadly to all people, I think that that's appropriate. Mankind is supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. So this is like a general overall mission statement for mankind. The command is repeated later on in Genesis nine. In Genesis nine, and this this is important. Um, 
There we go. Genesis 9, 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he's, he's re-upping that command. Now it applies to Noah and his kids. Then in verse 7, we get it again. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So yeah, I want lots and lots of humans all over the place. This is considered a good thing. Now in our culture, this is like almost like it's a bad thing that there's lots of humans. That's a weird cultural thing that's going on. I think it has to do with the devaluing of uh, human nature, right? And there are major concerns about um, pollution, about uh, mankind mistreating nature and creation and that sort of thing. Those are real issues. But when you start treating humans like they're parasites and they're like just another animal, I think that's a serious problem and it's definitely not biblical. I want to notice this though. Both of these commands, Genesis 1 and 9, they come at a time when the population of the planet is incredibly low. We're talking Noah and his family or Adam and Eve. So be fruitful and multiply is in context of a very low population planet. I'm not going to argue against those who suggest that there may be some point where you go, look, hey, we're we're kind of filling the earth. Like we're kind of doing our job here. I don't really know that I would argue against that because it does correspond to there being a low population um, but, but that might be different than being a married couple who's purposely, intentionally never going to have kids. That just feels like a different story to me than, you know, than that. So both these commands come at that time when population is low. Jesus gives us insight into this as well. He seems to take the command, um, pretty, uh, well, let's just say this. He doesn't take it like some people do. Some people will, will, will confront other Christians and they go, you guys, you haven't had kids. You know, you're, you're rejecting God's command. I, I, I think that that's problematic because of Jesus. So Jesus recommends singleness as actually a way of serving God. He says, some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. And if you want to accept that, accept that, do that. If that's what the path you want to take. So that means no kids. That that commitment to singleness means no kids. Jesus thought that was a, a noble path of serving God. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7. He suggests that you know staying single is actually a positive thing. It's a it's a nice thing. This is 1 Corinthians 7 verses 32 through 38 would be the section I'd recommend you look at for homework. Um, I'm going to move quickly here so I can get to your guys' questions and spend lots of time on those as well. But basically, singleness is better for the sake of the kingdom. If, and there's a huge if for single people, if you use that singleness for the sake of the kingdom and not just to pursue your own pleasures. Singleness doesn't mean you could spend 12 hours a day playing video games or that you could just pursue what you want all day long. Singleness means I can serve God that much more with my time. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the volunteer staff that's like at every event. I'm able to put in more hours because I don't have those family concerns. That's the, that's the way singleness can serve God. So a view that everyone is supposed to have kids is impossible to hold. If Jesus lauded singleness and Paul did as well as a way of serving God, then telling everyone they're supposed to have kids is wrong. So again, we have to look at this as an umbrella thing. Mankind is to have kids. Now, there might be um, times where you don't want to have kids, perhaps as a married couple. Like you could try to build a case for this, although it, you'd be hard pressed to say that the Bible like commands that or the Bible like reinforces that strongly, but it may be implied when Jesus is talking about like, woe to those who were nursing babies and pregnant in those days. There may be certain days where you're like, hey, we're in extreme hardship. This is not a good time to become pregnant. We're going to avoid that for our family right now. I think that now I'm not talking about abortion. That's murder. Let me just put that off the table. I'm not talking about birth control that actually kills a living human being. That's not birth control uh, or that's it's not it's not having kids. That's eliminating the kid you've already got. So I'm not talking about those things. Um, I'm talking here about uh, people who decide not to have the kid in the first place, not to not become pregnant is the idea. Um, so there may be a season for that, but there's some things I want to just 
throw out there that I think our culture gets wrong. And as Christians, we want to be biblically minded. I want to be thinking biblically. So here's things our culture thinks, why they think that, that every day is a good day to not have a kid. That's often what's going on in our culture. It's happening in many of the more um, um, westernized and increasingly westernized countries right now. And so they, the idea that humans are parasites, this is this is on movies and shows, it's in our culture, humans are basically the bad guys. Like we've been, since I was a kid, I've been watching movies about uh, how humans are going to be punished because of their treatment of the world. It's so funny is that this is, this is sort of making nature God, like nature is going to get you, right? Nature is going to get you, uh, not, you know, because of your crimes against nature, forget your sins against God. That, that would be the more Christian view is like God's judgment is coming upon this world. But to replace God with nature is to suggest that, you know, Mother Earth's judgment's going to come upon you for you mistreating Earth. Humans are not parasites on this world. Our great sin is not um, hunting or eating or eating uh, meat or something like that. This, this is not the great sin of mankind. Uh, not in a biblical sense. Not in that sense. So I want to suggest that that's an unbiblical view that has kind of seeped into many Christians. And, and one way you see it is... Your view of murder versus uh, animal cruelty. I hate animal cruelty. It gets it gets me going just like it does everybody else. But if you think murder is like not as big of a deal as killing an animal, murdering a person is not as big of a deal as killing an anim animal, then um, then you have a radically distorted uh, view of humans. It's it's not just that you like animals so much that you no no no. Your problem is that you devalue humans, and that's not a biblical view. We're made in the image of God. We have incredible value. Christ died to save us. This is this is, speaks highly of our human value. There's nothing immoral about just the fact that humankind's have spread around the world. That's a fulfillment of that command. So when you're like, look, there's a lot of people over there. That's not just automatically immoral or bad. That's like kind of a fulfillment. Um, we can mismanage the land, right? And, and I've already spoke to that. And, and, and gross pollution and things like this are sinful, I think, actually sinful. So that is an issue. But I think a lot of modern refusal to have kids is just selfish. It's not for God's kingdom, but it's to pursue our own pleasures. It's to just do what we want with our lives. I just want to do what I want with my life. I want to have the freedom to do what I want and not be bound by a commitment to a kid. And I'll say, oh, well, it's because I don't want to bring another kid into this difficult world. And, and re in reality... That's really just a lame excuse. Like it's it's paper thin and oftentimes it's like, no, I, I just want to do what I want with my life. That's a concern that I see. Um, people think that life isn't worth living in this day and age. And I think the problem they have is that they don't have a good value of life. Human life is kind of valuable. And when you say life isn't worth living in this day and age, I think your problem's not that you just think this day and age is hard. It's that you think life's worth is really low. And your 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 bar for what for making it worth living is is silly as a result. So, human life is is ridiculously valuable. Uh, we're made in the image of God. Um, having kids is awesome. Um, now, some people say, well, back then, Mike, you know, they were agrarian, so having kids they helped work. And now, kids instead of bringing money to the family, they're costing money. And all I want to say here is, you you're projecting a view of kids onto the past that's not true, right? You're acting like Let's just be honest. You're acting like kids should be had dependent upon their material value to you financially. And that, um, again, does not value human life properly. Uh, you know, kids cost money. Yeah. So. <laughs> so. Anyway. All right. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that this means that you could never put a stop. You know, like you said, a family has three kids and they go, okay, we're not going to continue to try to have kids. I'm, I'm not even trying to measure in on that. 
I am just helping us try to think more biblically about the idea of having kids. Be fruitful and multiply as a canopy sort of treatment to humankind. It's a positive thing. It's a good thing. Our culture has kicked against this by devaluing human life. And I think that's a major problem and it does infect Christians as well. And I think that those are the things that I would want to speak to on that question. So I'm going to go to your guys' questions. Um, I dropped my phone on the ground. And... Uh, Okay, hold on. Um, if I can do this real quick, um, I don't think I, I'm. I'll, yeah, I'll have to do that some other time. I can't turn slow mode on just now. Sorry, mods. Uh, it's just the nature of the way that I had to jury rig the stream together today. Um, now I'm going to go to your guys' questions. This uh, is again the last Q and A for this year. This is the last one. Even if I do a live stream later, which I might, um, and as an update, I'm, I'm preparing for a, a stream I might do this year or, or it'll be in January on Brian Simmons' false prophecy that this man, Brian Simmons, has actually uttered like false prophecy. And I've got this on record in my study prepping for the, um, the Passion Project. I was looking for quotes of Brian Simmons while he talks about his translation, his techniques, his tactics, and the things he says outrageous claims so I could play these and then have scholars respond to those claims. Well, I found hours and hours and hours and hours of footage, um, struggled through listening to all of it. In addition to finding what I needed for the project, I found what, what is clearly false prophecy coming from the man. This to me is incredibly significant. So I'm going to be sharing video content on that pretty soon. Um, hopefully pretty soon, as soon as I'm able to pull it together. Um, it's kind of like when I get done with other things, I can work on that. So as my schedule allows, I'm going to put that together and get it for you guys. Uh, Mel Melanie Holstein says, am I being too legalistic by not wanting to sing Hillsong Elevation Worship and Bethel music due to the doctrines of their churches they are part of? Not by any stretch of the imagination, Melanie. Um, here's an area where I want to say, you aren't being too legalistic because you don't want to sing those songs. But if you tell other people they can't sing those songs for the same reasons you have, that's where I want to stop and say, maybe you need to just give them a little space for their for their own conscience and their own obedience to Christ. Uh, because this is kind of like meat sold in the marketplace, in my view. So when Paul deals with meat sold in the marketplace, um, it's just known that the people selling meat in the first Corinthian in, in the first Corinthian in Corinth, as he talks about this in first and second Corinthians, when he when they're selling meat, those, that meat was offered to idols. It was like way before an idol, a prayer was said over it, a pagan prayer. And then they're selling it in the marketplace. And some uh, some believers were like, I can't eat the stuff sold in the marketplace. So there were, it seems that some of them were becoming vegetarians to avoid eating meat because of its connotations, right? It's, it's not pagan, but it's connected to something that's wrong. And here Paul's like, hey, don't judge each other on this issue. Uh, don't go into the temple and participate in pagan rituals, but you're just eating meat. Demons are nothing. This stuff means nothing. Go ahead and thank God and you can eat the meat, but don't violate your conscience. That's kind of the rule. Now, I'm going to suggest that the, the music of Bethel is like this as well. That, and, and, and it's, okay, let me pause for a second. Some people can't think carefully about these things. I'm not suggesting either that Bethel is, is the same as a pagan, uh, Temple. That's not what I'm suggesting. Uh, nor am I suggesting that there's absolutely nothing wrong with the content and the music coming out with Bethel. I'm not suggesting either of those extremes. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. So here's my view. If, if this might help inform your view, take it or leave it. The stuff coming from Bethel is first off, 
um, uh, it's coming from an organization that is pushing a false revival and fake I, and I've done a lot of work to try to prove this in my video content on, on Bill Johnson's teaching um, that is producing fake gifts, fake prophecy, fake healings. I think that's very problematic. I think it's going to cause lots and lots of trouble down the road for Christians. So that's what's coming. That's Bethel. That's that's their their main export is false revival, if I could put it that way. Mixed into that is some really awesome Christian encouragement and some very questionable teachings and even some very dangerous teachings. It's, it's, a, it's a whole mixed bag. There's all that in there. Now, the music is not the same as Bethel. The music is just worship music. But in some of the music, some of those weird teachings are there. And in other bits of the music, none of it's there. It's just good music. It's just nice a nice worship song. Some people are like, because of this music's association with Bethel, because people are using the music to try to get people over to the weird things, I won't touch any of it. And other people go, well, I could selectively sing one of the songs or not one of the songs. Or some people are even more tolerant and they go, I can sing the song and just not that line. Or I have my own meaning I put on that. Here's where I want to give people lots of space to have convictions and to honor Christ in their own ways. But the one question I have is this. Knowing that the increasing dramatic issues that, I'm, that, I, that people are struggling with in dealing with the music that is connected to the movement, it makes me think that it's becoming increasingly unwise to put that music in front of whole congregations. Because... When someone's talking about their private worship experience, they can partake of whatever they want. But when they come to church, I've prepared a meal, so to speak, of, of meat from the market, and I'm presenting it to everybody. And that's what the worship is like in churches. When you, when you go there, you're, if there's songs that you know are going to cause significant numbers of your people to struggle or to have a hard time or to potentially stumble in some way, you should avoid those songs as a worship leader because you're not preparing food for yourself. You're preparing it for everyone. There's my analogy of that. Um, question number three, Full of Shades says, please, can you talk about your view on Netflix? Should Christians cancel their Netflix subscription? Uh, here's another issue where I'm, I'm going to say, um, we don't have this like abundantly clear rule for Christians. Like I don't see where, I can see where biblical principles can guide us to make a choice to cancel a Netflix subscription. Me and my wife can't, we had our Netflix subscription. We canceled it not too long ago. And I, they said, why? And I said, because of the increasingly immoral nature of your programming. And it wasn't just one program. It's, it's, it's the trend. It's been happening over years. We've been watching this and getting more and more concerned about it. And so we did make that decision. Do I think that, um, every Christian has to do that too? This is where we move from taking a moral stand to just infighting. And that's a huge difference. It's one thing to take a moral stand and say, guys, I feel compelled to do this. It's something else to say, you're in sin if you're not doing it too. Especially on an area where there could, this could be disputes over doubtful things, right? This, this could be disputes over doubtful things. So at that point, stand in your convictions, hold to your convictions, even, you know, talk about them, but let's not divide and infight. And this is what I'm worried about infight amongst each other so that someone says like, I watched this show. It was great. And you know, that show was on Netflix. So you're hitting them. You're still watching Netflix. Wow. You've really, you're a really good example of a Christian. Like this kind of thing happening in, 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 in her, uh, correspondence online is, um, that is sin. <laughs> and so let's hold to hold our conscience while giving room for others, realizing that there are, are issues that we're going to disagree on and we need to still have love and fellowship in the midst of that. All right, so Sandrea says, um, why did the Holy Spirit leave Saul and why did an evil spirit from the Lord enter into him? Why in the world would God do something that seems to be evil? 
I don't think it was, uh, well, let me, uh, there's several questions here. Okay. Why did the Holy Spirit leave Saul? Because Saul had betrayed God and rebelled against God and did his own thing as king. So when you realize the Holy Spirit came to Saul as a, not a, um, you are saved forever. This is the indwelling of the spirit. This is salvation. That, That wasn't the mode of the interaction of the Holy Spirit and Saul. The Holy Spirit entered Saul or came upon Saul in a empowerment and enablement to be king because he was the anointed one called to be king. When he continually rebelled, the Holy Spirit departed from him. This is, I don't think this is directly a salvation issue. I think this is about anointing to be king, right? This is, a, this is the Holy Spirit empowering you for this job. And that left. And then as Saul continued to rebel against God, right, then uh, evil spirit came upon him and in, uh, and you think, well, God's evil for allowing that. Well, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think that God allowing, uh, and when it says evil spirit, I'm not sure that it was a, a, a wicked spirit, like morally evil, or the word evil can also just mean, as it does in the Bible, it can just mean uh, bad or harmful, harmful. Okay, so there's that as well. I'm not sure of the nature of the spirit that entered Saul. I guess I'd have to go look at the passage again to confirm that. At any rate, God allowing the enemy, even if, let's say it was a morally evil spirit, allowing the enemy to attack you because of your rebellion against him is not an immoral thing on God's part. Rather, this is consequences for sin. And so when Israel as a nation, Saul's like a microcosm of Israel here. When Israel as a nation gets the Holy Spirit coming to the temple, they rebel against God, God's spirit departs from the temple, and then his protection of Israel falls, and the enemies come in and destroy, like Nebuchadnezzar, who was not a good guy. He's a bad guy. He comes and wrecks in Israel, destroys the temple. You could say, well, God used an evil person, Nebuchadnezzar, therefore God's evil. I think here that, um, I think that's wrong. I just think it's wrong to say that. There's no reason to think that God's evil. He's the sovereign of all things. He uses even even Satan to accomplish his ultimate goals. That doesn't mean that he's on the hook for what Satan does. He's He's not directly causally making the enemy do all those things right he is rather in his sovereignty working all things together for good including the work and the action of the enemy so there's a difference here between what god does um uh directly and causally and what god allows and sovereignly controls and guides that's a quick answer i know there's a lot more to unpack there i hope it's helpful for you uh, number five, John Ernest says, Shmuley Botich says that the New Testament contains anti-Semitic propaganda and that Christians should reject those passages as forgeries. What do you think? I think that's a very foolish, very, very, very foolish thing to say. Because now your real Bible is Shmuley Botich, who is, or Botich, uh, I've heard his name before. I think he's a rabbi. Is that right? Anyway, um, your, that's, he's your real Bible. He's going to now filter, you know, you grab the scissors and you start cutting out the parts of the Bible that he doesn't like. And what is his rule? It's the crazy thing is it's not even like textual criticism. It's not like he's going, was this original? Did they really write this? Instead, he just says, here's my theology. I'm just going to cut the Bible into pieces to fit my theology. Like that's all that's really happening there. So um, now does the New Testament have anti-Semitic propaganda? No, no. Does it talk about the guilt of the Jewish people for having rebelled against and rejected Christ, in particular the leadership? Yes, it does. Is that anti-Semitic? Well, no, because it's not based on them being Jewish, is it? Anti-Semitic would be, I hate you because you're Jewish. That would be anti-Semitic. Not, 
you happen to be Jewish and you've committed a sin and you're guilty of the sin and God is going to deal with you because of the sin, but not because you're Jewish. I mean, in fact, the gospel goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If anything, if, 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 if you wanted to, you could accuse the Bible of being pro-Jewish, right? You could, you could say that. Uh, the promises to Israel are still remain. There's, in Romans 9, it talks about the, the future uh, fulfillment of prophecy coming to Israel, that all Israel will be saved. Um, in, in Romans 9 through 11, this whole big, long teaching that talks about this stuff. Jesus is Jewish. All the disciples are Jewish. All the initial disciples are Jewish. In the book of Acts, it's actually about how these Jews are like, can we really accept these Gentiles into the faith? They're kind of, you know, they're Gentiles. You know, like that's the idea in the book of Acts. Um, anyways, yeah, Shmuley Botich, um, just the fact that he says this tells me very clearly, false teacher, stay away from that guy, weird agendas, do not believe the what he says about the Bible. Um, that's And that's, I've heard his name before, but that's, I don't know his teaching. But John, that would be enough for me to just be like, get away from this guy. Um, he has an agenda and the Bible doesn't fit his agenda, so he wants to cut pieces of it out. Tina says, I was raised a uh, JW and baptized as a kid, but not in the name of the Father and uh, the Son and Holy Spirit. How do I know what church to choose and who should baptize me? I'm afraid of being misled. Um, okay, so let me say this. Tina, you were, let me, I, I'd like to change the way you think about church. So you were raised Jehovah's Witness, which means there's a good chance that you think that there are true church, there's a true church, and then there are false churches. The Jehovah's Witnesses told you we're the true church. We're the real people of God. Everyone else is very questionable. Everyone else is, is, is apostate. We're the real people. Now, as you move over to true faith in Christ and to knowing Jesus and the real Jesus of, of creation of the Bible, of Christianity, you can carry over these like leftovers, these, these remnants of your Jehovah's Witness views that you don't know are with you. I think you know you probably know this already. Like there's things you think and a year later, five years later, you go, that was wrong. That was Jehovah's Witness stuff that was still in my head. I, I didn't even know it. Well, one JW thing that might still be in your head is the idea that there is just like a true church and you have to find like that true church where you can just trust those people and you can follow those people and they're your real perfect guides, kind of like the Jehovah's Witness have the governing body as their real perfect guides. And I would say that those that doesn't exist. What you have in church is you have people who are flawed, people who are not perfect guides following the perfect Jesus. So what you really need to do is not go from being a Jehovah's Witness to being a member of a different church that is then perfect and guiding you perfectly. You need to go from being a, a JW and following the governing body to being a Christian who follows Christ and recognizes that even a pastor, even a church, they will be genuine. That's what you want. You want genuine, but you don't need them to be like the true church, like the perfect church or the one that will guide and direct you. You just need genuine Christians. They'll have flaws. They'll, the pastor will have some things that are wrong. The leadership will do some things that are that are mistaken, and, and that's okay because there's a, a genuineness that's there. And here I'll say you have lots of options. You have lots of options probably, hopefully, around you of some different um, churches that will be around you that you could go to. Now, if you're just like, I'm really clueless, Mike. I don't even know where to start. Well, I mean, I would if, if I moved to a new place, the first churches I would look for would probably be um, like a, if it was a Calvary Chapel church, I would consider, I'm not saying I would just go, I would consider going. If it was a Baptist church, I would consider going. Um, those are a couple of the things I would look at. It doesn't mean like they're, they're perfect, but they might be somewhere to start. Um, now, what about being baptized? Can I say this? You just need, um, 
you don't need special people to baptize you. Just, just find somebody, even if they're not perfect, even if you don't end up always going to their church forever, that's okay. Find somebody who is, you would just look up to spiritually and you'd think, okay, there's just like a genuine Christian and just know this, that it's, 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 it's Jesus who saves you. And it's not even the baptism that saves you, but that is, that is an important part of, of what you need to do next. Don't worry about perfection there. Alicia Huat says, I have liberal Christian friends who believe they are Christians, but also have many unbiblical beliefs and practices. How should 1 Corinthians 5.11 affect my relationships with them? Is that the unequally yoked passage there? Let's take a look. Um, okay, here we go. This passage, um, it says about who we should associate with as Christians. It says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Now here this is talking about, I think eat with um, probably means in the context of communion. They were having communion meals, not just a, not just a service with a cracker and, and, and a little tiny cup, but whole meals in their communion the, you know, love feasts, they might call them. And so they would do this and it'd be a whole meal. And he's like, they shouldn't even be part of your communion. And I think the thing here is, um, they, they call themselves a brother and he doesn't want the, think of this as not individual. This is, this is, this is the church as a whole that he's talking to, I think in first Corinthians five, he doesn't want their local fellowship to be associated as if these people represent us and they're wicked and they're immoral. <clears throat> Here, he's not actually dealing with theology. He's dealing with life sin practices. So when you say they're liberal, I, I don't know what you mean by that. But if you mean they live a sexually immoral lifestyle, they live a carnally greedy lifestyle, like not like they just sometimes they struggle with greed, but they're that's just, they're carnal, right? They live carnally. That's just how they live. They're an idolater. They're worshiping idols. They revile. They're, dr they're drunkards. They just regularly get drunk. They're swindlers. Um, then your local fellowship should do church discipline. This almost never happens where they say you cannot be part of our fellowship until you get your life right. You're living in constant, continual rejection of, of the Lordship of Christ. And this is um, something that is, is almost never done, but I think it's biblical. Now, as an individual, could you, at, at, you know, what would your posture be towards them? Well, if you're to treat them as unbelievers, which is, seems to be what Paul ends up concluding here, then your, your, your attitude towards unbelievers is you don't, you don't think they're part of your body of Christ, but you always want them to be. So you have a loving and gracious and inviting attitude towards them. So it's not like, I hate you now. I, I, you know, you are dead to me. Rather, it's, I'm just recognizing that your lifestyle is that of an unbeliever and you profane the name of Christ if you are coming and representing Jesus. And so we need to draw a line here. So then I, would I still eat with them? Would I get lunch with them? Like say three months goes by and I go, hey man, let's get lunch. And I just, I'm going to check in. How are you doing? Like, I don't think that would be wrong, but it's wrong if they're representing Christ to the community around you. They're, they're profaning his name. So how should this affect your relationship with them? Um, uh, I think that you may, depending on how extreme their beliefs are, Alicia, you might move them into the category of being a non-believer who says they're Christians. And you just, and you, and maybe you tell, you're honest with them. You say, I, I, I question whether you're really a believer in Jesus because of the things you say. Um, and those are some tough things. Um, can you still love them? Can you still at least reach out to them? Per perhaps it's more about a posture. It's like, I go from fellowship mode to outreach mode. And there's just a, this is how in my head, I think of it. I think of him as being in outreach mode. Okay. Not fellowship mode. <laughs> And outreach mode is still just as loving. 
still just as kind. It's just that the goals of, of this relationship are different. The goals are different. And I don't know if that, if that helps you, Alicia, I hope so. I, I feel I, I may not have fully answered that question. So I'm sorry. Uh, Sydney asks, what does the Bible say about the role of the church? Should it be focused more on reaching unbelievers or on teaching believers who then go out and evangelize? Well, I mean, the, the role of the church, if you say role of the church, Sydney, and you're thinking of the Sunday service, I think the goal can be different in different locations and different seasons. I think the Sunday service should minister to the people that are there, right? So it, it might be more, you know, maybe it's on a spectrum, like, you know, here's discipleship, here's outreach. And it's like, you're here, you're more discipleship and a little bit of outreach, or maybe you're in a season of revival, lots of, lots of unsafe people coming to the church. So you're moving more towards outreach. And then like a couple years goes by and now they need more discipleship. So I think the pastor should be sensitive to the needs of the people. Discipleship always has to happen. Outreach is the more optional one on Sunday mornings, if you ask me. Uh, it's not entirely optional. You have to, you, you need to preach the gospel. Obviously that's even part of discipleship. So you're going to preach the gospel, but how heavily do you emphasize that may depend on the season the church is in, but that's just Sunday service. The church is the body of Christ. So the church is, there's as, there's as much church going on as far as being the church on Monday as there is on Sunday. So I think that the emphasis and the care and the passion that the that that the individuals in the church have for outreaching to their neighbors and their coworkers and their communities, that is the thing that's, that that concerns and, and scares me a bit when that's missing, or when they think, oh, that's Sunday. My outreach is I invite someone to come to church on Sunday, and then the pastor has to preach to them. I, I think now we're putting a potentially putting a burden on pastors to do all of the outreach, that is silly, and not as effective either. Like people you know telling you about Jesus is more effective than strangers you don't know telling you about Jesus, generally speaking, I think. So how much should the church's role be focused on reaching unbelievers? I, I think that a lot of it, but I wouldn't put that on Sunday morning. I would put that all week long when you're interacting with the world. When the gathering of Christians comes, I lean more towards discipleship personally. Um but in churches where nobody does outreach and then the Sunday morning becomes the only outreach event, all, all, you know, the only outreach thing that happens in that body of believers, all of a sudden they start emphasizing outreach more there because it's like, well, it's the lifeline, right? It's not happening anywhere else. So it has to happen here. I think that that is because of a lack of personal outreach happening um, in the community. Uh, Samuel Schuffler has a question. Do you ever plan to do a deep dive into the authorship of the contested Pauline epistles? I feel this would be a great resource for those in talks with more liberal Christians. Samuel, this is like one of those issues that I, I like really want to do and I have it on like my list. <laughs> but if I'm honest about like where the priorities are, it's pretty, it's pretty far down the list. But it's something I do care about. Um, and in, in some of these things, I'm kind of a patient person, so forgive me for saying this. It may be like four years out, <laughs> but I do want to do it eventually. I think it's very important, but I'm not the only resource in the body of Christ. I would love to do it and try to make it as good as I can get it. There's other people who've done stuff on this. Somebody who's done work on this, if you're interested, is a guy named Daryl Bach. Daryl Bach. So just type up, type up Daryl Bach, B-O-C-K, and... Um, uh, authorship of the Pauline epistles or something like that in search engine. And you may find some resources there. Uh, Samuel George has a question. What are the steps to take while dealing with psychological doubts where no amount of reason um, will help you feel better? So psychological doubts, 
where there, where a reason doesn't seem to help, I think the first thing to recognize is is having the humility to know that you're being unreasonable. That's a big deal. So I, I think that this happens for anybody who's dealing with um, believing lies, is that humility is a major path to overcoming lies that we believe. Because so often, what we're doing is we're just being, and forgive me, you guys, but I'm speaking as someone who's gone through it. We're being arrogant. And we're thinking, well, if I don't feel better, it must not be true. And that is actually a really, that's actually a pretty arrogant view when you're standing in the face of all the evidence and you go, all the evidence supports, supports this thing being true. Um, I have all these good reasons to believe, but I just don't feel it, so I'm going to reject all that. That is actually pretty arrogant at that point. So what I'm going to suggest is soberly telling yourself, maybe I'm just really delusional here. Maybe my, my doubts are actually irrational and I'm being delusional and just admitting to yourself, I'm irrational. My feelings shouldn't dictate my behavior here because my feelings are based on things that aren't true. I think this could actually be really helpful for lots of people. I think one of the, the things I've seen for people suffering with mental illness, the friends I've had, the people I've watched struggle with mental illness, is that those who have the humility to say, sometimes I don't think right, so I have to trust people around me when they tell me, hey, you're, you're wrong here. I had a buddy who was schizophrenic, and he, he told me, Mike, sometimes um, I feel like maybe you hate me, um, and you're mad at me, and I, I just... I need you to sometimes just tell me that you're not. And I was like, okay. I And he had such incredible humility to go, I don't know how to get out of my thinking. I, I'm just going to trust you when you tell me that. I'm just going to believe you. <clears throat> that, that is actually a, a safety net for coming out of all kinds of mental struggles is trusting somebody. So here I'm going to say trusting God is the cure and not trusting our psychological state. And you go, okay. I'm irrational. I'm fearful. I'm doubting here, but it's irrational. I'm just going to trust God. I don't feel better, but it's okay because I'm not going to rely upon how I feel. Is that easy to do? No. Do, is it valuable? Yeah. <laughs> is it valuable? It's immeasurably valuable. Immeasurably valuable. Some of the people who struggle with the worst mental illness don't believe anybody else when they tell them how wrong they are. And if they would just believe other people, if they would just have some trust, then it would it would go a long way to helping them navigate through the things that are thinking that are true and the things they're thinking that are false. So here's where I, I would say you've got reason and now trust needs to come in. Um, so psychological doubts. <clears throat> the other thing I would do is I would, take, I would say quick fire things. When you're having personal devotional time reading the word, don't expect emotional confirmation. When you're having times of worship or you're praising God, do not expect emotional confirmation. Don't require it. Consider it an, an act that is worth doing whether you feel good about it or not. And um, when you have times of prayer, don't look for emotional confirmation. Do, do you get the thing I'm suggesting over and over again here? Is stop asking your emotions to confirm everything that you're experiencing. That's really healthy. There's my, my thoughts. I do hope it helps, Samuel. My heart goes out to people who are in that, in that spot, and I've been there myself. <clears throat> Peter Solas says, do you think the SDA is a cult? Um, uh, I, guess, I guess I do lean... I lean that way. But you know what? I, what I want to do is I've had tons of you guys request that I do a whole thing on the SDA, the Seventh-day Adventists. And that is on my list. It's higher up than the Pauline epistles. <laughs> um, and I'm going to do that. Um, hopefully next year, I'll do a whole thing on the SDA. I can't promise how soon it'll be. I've got so many things on my plate right now. But I will dig into that. 
I will dig into that. Um, question 12, I'm not Wyatt says, <clears throat> I have a family that believes that Jews will go to heaven even if they haven't been saved by Jesus. What should I say to them even when they say that? Uh, how about Romans, book of Romans? Um, chapter 10, I believe, the first few verses. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jews and look at how he describes them here in Romans 10. Paul says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. There's a zeal for God, right? These are Jews that love the, the Old Testament law, that love the law of Moses, and they have a zeal for God. And it's the right God. Like, it's not like Muslims who have a false definition of God, right? It, this is the Jews who actually have the right definition of God. Like when, when Jesus said to the one at the well, like, we worship, we know who we worship. You don't know who you're worshiping. Like that the Jews were actually worshiping the right God. They had the, whereas the Samaritans had this had a cult effectively with the false God. Um, <clears throat> so the Jews have a zeal for God, right? But, but they're not saved because his desire is that they would be saved. So according to Romans, a, a Jew that has the, a real zeal for God, but, and they're trying to obey the law, but they don't trust in Christ that, that they're not saved, right? In particular, these are Jews that had heard the gospel. So we're not talking about the ones who'd never heard the gospel, um, who were before Christ or something, or have lived isolated in some sense from the gospel message. I think God judges us based on what we know. But he bears them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Right, because they're being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, which is called self-righteousness. That's that's the true nature of, of of legalism. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. His heart breaks. He could wish himself a curse from Christ. He'll say, um, if 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 that would save his brethren, he wants them saved. So I would say that um, people who hold this view, uh, Jews have a separate path to salvation than Jesus. Um, they have, there's every, everything that could be wrong with that view is wrong with that view. It's hard to say things that are theologically more incorrect than that Jews have a path to salvation apart from Christ. Jesus is literally the Jewish savior. And so we're saying if a Jew, you're, you're born Jew and you reject your savior, don't worry, you have a different path. And that path is the law apparently, right? Which Galatians makes clear is there to condemn us, to show us our need for Christ. Everything possible is wrong with that view and how unloving I am to a Jewish person if I don't tell them about Jesus because I think they don't need their own savior. Um, the gospel goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It doesn't just go to the Gentiles. It doesn't just go to the non-Jews. Everything that could be wrong with that is wrong with that, sadly. Amanda Duke says, how does God's will not infringe on free will? What in this? What in the sense of even praying for a situation... Or what is the sense of praying for a situation if it's already in God's will? Okay, so how does God's will not infringe on free will? Um, well, God, here's the sh a short answer to the first question. God allows us to do things he doesn't like. God allows us. So how does how does your, your will and God's will interact in that sense? Well, he lets you do things he doesn't will, he doesn't desire. And so that's clear in scripture. Many, 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 countless times he's saying that people are doing things he doesn't want them to do, doesn't will them to do. Yet, he'll work all things together for good, right? Because part of his will is you making free will choices. That is part of his will. And so even though he wants you to make good choices, he also wants you to make choices. So he lets you make choices. Uh, but another another sense, he's also going to work all things together for good. So he's going to use and, you know, 
basically work in the situations to bring about his ultimate plan, his ultimate ultimate overarching plan for the universe is going to take place. You says, what's the sense of praying for a situation if it's already in God's will? Exactly that. God might want to do it, but perhaps he won't do it if you don't pray because he also wants you to pray. Like I'm just saying God's will can involve more than one thing. He desires to um, heal this person, but he also desires to do so through the agency of another person praying and another person prays and now it's not part, now it's not fitting that desire. So I, I just think that um, those who struggle with prayer because they're like, well, if God's going to heal, he's going to heal him. That's just not true. It's just not true. Like otherwise, every time in the Bible where Paul's like, pray for me, I pray for you. This was like dumb and pointless. That wouldn't make any sense. When Moses interceded for the people of Israel and God was going to kill him, like they were going to die if he didn't intercede. And God wanted him to intercede. But if he didn't, that would have been the end of them. Uh, there's prayers powerful, prayers effective, prayers impactful. Anything that attacks your prayer is a lot and a dangerous one because prayer really is an amazing thing where God does interact because part of his will is that we pray. Caleb has a question. Do you believe amillennialism is biblical and what arguments do you have for or against it? Uh, no, I don't believe it's bibli biblical, Caleb, although I couldn't, I couldn't off the top of my head give you arguments for and against it um it's been a long time since i've focused on uh, eschatology stuff so i know that's like one of the top things I'm, I'm asked for you know if i just did everything that was most asked for <laughs> that would be one of the first things i did was i'm gonna teach revelation next and things like that but um but i also have to pray and seek for wisdom and guidance and look for right things to do for the ministry. So I haven't focused on that in years. So it would be really old data if I was to try to summarize that stuff for you. So I'm not going to try to right now, Caleb. But yeah, I don't think it's biblical. It's not my view. I'm, I'm more of a futurist. I think we're premillennial. I do think that there's actually a seven-year tribulation and that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ. And um, and if, if it's not exactly perfectly a thousand years, it's close. It's close enough to be rounding it out to a thousand years. That would be my view. Could I be wrong? Yes, it's possible. Am I open to changing my theology on that? Absolutely. But that'll be after doing some real work on the topic um, to double check myself. Uh, Bad Wookie has a question. I feel called to spread God's word further, uh, but I suffer greatly from Asperger's syndrome. Is my fear of crowds, public speaking, and inability to convey a thought coherently a valid fear? Um, okay, so the last one I want to highlight there, Bad Wookie. Are you actually unable to convey thoughts clearly in front of crowds? And if the answer is yes, like I literally can't, then I would look for other ways of, of reaching and ministering to people. Why not you do a blog? You write things out and then you share them. Why not interact in comment sections? Um, on, that's where I started, on comment sections and, and forums where you're talking to people about these things. Um, you could do that as well if, if, if public speaking is such a difficulty for you. But the fear of not being able to convey a thought isn't the same thing as I actually have reasons why I just can't do that. So I, I tend to look at um, fears, set aside fears, and just look at your skills and abilities. Okay, there's things you're good at, there's things you're not good at. When you're serving Christ, take the things you're good at and use those to the most of your ability and try to make it so that your service to Christ doesn't depend on all the stuff you're no good at because God's gifted you in unique ways and you want to lean into those gifts. Right, so if you're... If you're gifted at public speaking, then you should lean into that and serve the Lord in that. But if you're gifted more at writing, then you should lean into that. Or maybe you're gifted at other types of service. So you should come alongside or start your own ministry where it's all about service in other types of ministry. There's there's different gifts that we have. And 
we, when we lean on those, we can serve God better. It's kind of like, um, uh, like, like for instance, I, I, I've always, I've been a worship leader for a long time, but I've never felt that worship leading was a particular gift of mine. I did it because the need was there and I have some ability to do it. Never felt particularly good at it, um, particularly gifted at it. My gift has always been, in my view, teaching, not because I want it to be, but because as I look at the practical impact of it and my capability to do it, I go, wow, Lord, you've, you've gifted me in this more so than in other things. So I lean into that and that allows my ministry to have more of an impact. Giant Mushroom Tree says, I got away with felonies years ago. No one got hurt and I have confessed to God and repented is the godly thing to do to turn myself in. I have OCD and I can't tell if it's OCD or conviction. Um, giant mushroom tree, I have to pass you on to a local leader in your, in your fellowship, in a church around you, like find some godly pastor or just godly Christian who you would see as mature and wise, right? That they aren't, they don't just have good theology. They have, they have wisdom in life and go and share your whole story, all the details with that person and get their counsel and advice. I am too fearful to give you advice based on knowing so little about your scenario. So I'm going to ask that you, you reach out to somebody else. Number 17, Maddie Young's Cloud Art says, if the angels weren't 100% safe in heaven, seeing as they were able to be seduced by Satan, how can we be certain we will be safe in eternity with God once we go to heaven? Um, well, I mean, you can we can make it real simple and we can answer the question like this. Um, we're not angels and scripture says that we will be with him forever. So if, if the Bible tells me I will be with him forever, then... I, I won't fall away. Now, how, now the, the question then is, how does that work out? Like, why don't I fall away? Why don't I sin? Why don't I rebel? And it, and it, may, it may well be for the reason that, and now here I can theorize, right? It may be because you've already made the choice, right? You already went through the temptation. You already had the opportunity to turn from God and you rejected it. And now you're, you're never going to make that decision in the future. Um, so uh, let's say that um, we have multiple differences in eternity in heaven than we do and heaven will meet earth and all that but we um we have multiple differences between that and our current current state one of the differences i already made a choice another difference is i'm actually indwelt with the holy spirit to the greatest degree possible okay that that has a preserving effect on my life um, another reason is that i have the experiences now of the fruit of those choices right i'm in the glory man i'm in the glory I don't live in the midst of a wicked people doing wicked sins all the time. I live in the perfect world. I live in perfection. And so this will, you know, the environment will motivate positive, continue positive choices. Another thing though, that's hugely important and people don't probably notice so much as, as much as they should is I'm rid of the flesh. This corruption must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. And when, when the Bible talks about our flesh, you know, that our sin nature within us is what's drawing us towards sin. And then it describes our eternal experience, not having sin nature. Like there's nothing in me that that's pulling me towards wickedness anymore. So my eternal life in heaven, I won't have that internal pull towards sin. And how many of us have been praying for this for years? Lord, I'll serve you. Just make me serve you. Just change my heart. Just, I just want to serve you. Well, listen, that is exactly what heaven, the heaven experience is. I've asked for the change and he's finally granted it. And so, yeah, there's another reason why we're not going to do that. Uh, angels don't have that uh, to speak for. Uh, Ryan Howard has a question. 
Ryan Howard, man, you're such a good producer. I just want to say you do really good work. Um, so I'm glad you're with us in our Q&A because I know it's the same Ryan Howard for sure. Hey, Mike, I have recently gotten back into full-time ministry. I'm dealing with online heresy hunters that badger me through email and such about my teaching. How would you handle this kind of people? Well, Ryan, stop teaching your heresy, man. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Obviously, you tell them you're they're right and you're wrong. Okay, let's just assume that you're not teaching heresy and that what you're really getting is people who are, uh, they disagree with you and they have zero tolerance for you. Um, um, my encouragement is don't spend all your time on that. We can spend all of our time trying to impact the people who we have the least impact in. And we're doing it sometimes to defend ourselves. Right? I can be wanting to defend myself. If you sense that there's part of you that's defending self, don't even respond to people. If you sense that, it, however, if you're thinking, oh no, I think I can help this person and you see a real avenue to helping, assisting them, then you can write something. Um, but otherwise, I would say, as you're, as you're doing online ministry and you're getting feedback, there's a, there's a tipping point where you start to go, wait a minute, and I, I, it took me a long time to get this, but I realized, wait, I could spend the next six hours in my comments, or I could spend six hours preparing a whole other teaching. I can help maybe maybe 50 people in the comments, or, I can help thousands of people with another video. And so I start trying to gauge what's the best ministry use of my time and energy. And that's another thing you want to consider, Ryan, as you're moving from your job as a uh, producer and film director over to full-time ministry. Um, I'm joking. If you guys can't tell, I'm joking. Sometimes people can't tell when I'm joking. At any rate, uh, yeah, Ryan, those would be a couple of things I would suggest. If you are going to handle them, I would say there's two issues with heresy hunters. And some people would say, I'm a heresy hunter. I, well, hey, guess what? I do like calling out heresy when I see it. Um, but there's two issues. One is a general attitude that's divisive over, over secondary issues and is uncharitable towards other people. And you may need to address that, right? Maybe that's what you address. And you go, hey, man, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, let's, have, let's say I'm wrong about this. Um, and you try to encourage them. We're still brothers in Christ. We're still, you know, da, da, da. You want to encourage that kind of unity because that's super important that we have that in the body of Christ. Um, but the second issue is, Always be open to them actually showing you that you're wrong on something as you read those comments. And it, and all this requires just a to just get rid of all self-defensiveness. Okay, defending myself is, has to just not be important at all. I just want to be like, is there truth there I can learn? No. Is there help there I can offer? No. And then move on. Number 19, we got two more and we're done. Martin Estevez says, can you talk about why Jesus allowed Simon to help him carry his cross? Why did Jesus allow Simon? Okay, well here... We are guessing. Let's just acknowledge that. We're totally guessing. We don't, we don't know why because the Bible doesn't tell us why. And I don't see any clear contextual reasons to see here's why he allowed Simon to carry his cross. Um, but now let me offer some possibilities. One, it may have been to demonstrate for all of us how beat up and how weak Jesus was. The fact that someone else helped him helps us identify with the suffering of Christ. We recognize how badly his suffering was was. Two, Simon and his kids, his kids actually get saved, it seems, as we read about them in later letters. So this this event, this he's randomly passing by, he's asked to carry the cross, this introduced him to, to Jesus, at least to a greater degree than before, and he ends up being saved. And Paul, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, maybe it's, no, no, I think it's Romans, at the end of Romans 16, where Paul mentions, uh, it seems to mention his son, his son. Now, in my study on Romans 16, I actually talk about this issue in particular. 
And so that might have been another reason. Um, now, there could have been a picture here about how we're, we're supposed to carry our cross. We're supposed to imitate and emulate the thing that Jesus did. I wouldn't lean too heavily on that because I, don't, I, I think there's, that's the truth. I just don't see it clearly in this particular passage. So there's a couple, of, a couple possibilities that I think are biblically consistent, even if I can't prove that I'm right. Mm, let's see. Question number 20. Sola FNQ says, how much utility should we find in the church fathers? I'm still Protestant, but want to be consistent with historic Christianity. So should we view the fathers with any extra credibility? Okay, so here's where I want to say extra credibility is where I, where I would draw the line. I would just draw the line right there. I would say, um, except for very, 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 very early church fathers, we're talking second century guys, they give us insights, not that they're more right than anybody else, but they just give us historic data, right? So when, when Polycarp talks about the gospel authors, okay, he is so much closer to the time of those things happening that I should take his words with a little more weight than somebody who comes 300 years later. Uh, when Justin Martyr is is talking about, he mentions the memoirs of the apostles and stuff like these have real historical value, but this isn't so much like the apostle, the church fathers are our teachers, but these like more apostolic fathers who they're not really apostolic. We shouldn't call them that. These are weird terms, church fathers, apostolic fathers. I think these are strange terms. I don't like them. It's just historically what everybody uses. Um, but the more the apostolic fathers to use the term, I think are probably more an, a window into early church history not perfect theology. Um, theology went awry pretty quickly in the early church and the New Testament is our safe source for right theology. The other thing I want to mention is this, the church fathers are, and this is a huge, huge, huge issue, can't overstate it. They're regularly quoted out of context to proof text for different doctrines. And the Protestants can do this and Roman Catholic apologists especially do this. I mean, it happens a lot. Church fathers are quoted out of context. People, when I was studying uh, penal substitutionary atonement, that doctrine, people would quote the church fathers radically out of, in fact, here's a book, major book by a legit scholar, right? This is Christus Victor and um, Gustav Aulin is the author of the book. And this thing right here, <laughs> let me just say, the church fathers are totally abused in this text. Like this cannot. So here's strung together quotes from the church fathers, utterly misrepresented. Um, and it ends up being one of the, uh, one of the works that helps move a whole group of people towards rejecting a biblical doctrine because of a misrepresentation of the church fathers. I think that when people quote the church fathers, they get us off of our safe ground, right? You've been reading the Bible your whole life, right? Or maybe just for a while, but, but you read the Bible you don't read the church fathers. So when someone says like, um, I, I read in this such and such church father, um, Origen said the following, and you don't know the historical context of Origen and you don't know all of his writings. You don't know whether he changed his mind and said something else later. You don't know if this came from, from where he got it from. You don't know if he was Greek influenced by other things other than the Bible. And so you can, you can try to proof text the Bible. I check the context. I quickly see if you're wrong. When you proof text the church fathers, it's like that process never happens. That's what I see more often than anything. Is there value though in the church fathers? Yes, there's definitely value. Is it the kind of authoritative value people usually promote? I don't think so. Um, it's just value. And if you want to read them, I'd recommend reading start to finish, right? Read your whole book. Don't just read a quote because then the proof texting stuff happens. So there's my... <coughs> um, uh, there's my comments on those things. I see Christus Victor is beautiful. Chip Ludic says, 
I actually think Christus Victor is beautiful if you understand it in a biblical fashion. But if you do what Gustav Aulin did, it you butchered Christus Victor as well as penal substitution, utterly just, just butchered those things. It's total anachronism, that sort of reading of the Church Fathers. And Chris, if you see Christus Victor as an alternative to um, penal substitution, then you're you're not you're not historical, and you're not biblical. Either one. Boom! Take that. <laughs> I spent <clears throat> so many hours on that particular topic, and I do think it's very relevant and important. Which is why I have a whole series on penal substitutionary atonement. And before you go, you might want to you might want to check it out. I'll I'll link it. In fact, I'll put it up on an end screen, and I'll link it in the description my series on penal substitutionary atonement where I dealt with this stuff and I tried to quote the church fathers with a greater context and I did find value in it. So thank you guys for, <clears throat> for joining the stream. I know we started really late today and which is why we've gone past the, the hour mark. I'm going to go back and edit out that really long botched intro where I was just checking and doing tech things and all that so that hopefully it will not be as sloppy as before. But here's quick announcements on my passion project. Ah, the passion translation Ah, the Passion Translation. So so on the Passion Project, what I've done is I've, I've hired a number of scholars to review the Passion Translation. I started putting up the reviews. The first one, Trimper Longman reviewing Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. That has already been up. The next one comes out in three days on Monday. And that's with Dr. Nijay Gupta, and he's reviewing Galatians. And he and it was a great review. It was one of the best interviews I've done on this project. And then over the next weeks, my intention is to put one out every week probably Mondays. More often than not, it'll be on a Monday. It might, um, if, if it goes into January, it might, I might move those to Wednesdays because I'll be teaching on Mondays as well. But <clears throat> those things will come out. I have uh, Daryl Bach coming out and I have Douglas Moo coming out and I have, um, uh, um, who else? Uh, Craig Blomberg coming out. I've already done their interviews. I just have massive hours of editing to do to put these videos together. You wouldn't believe how long it takes to get, to get them, which is why I usually live stream everything. <clears throat> all right, so <clears throat> that's all I got to say. Thank you guys so much for joining. A little, I was a little thrown off by all the tech issues and glitches we had, but I want to say thank you so much. Thank you guys for you who have um, supported this ministry, the people who have who have donated. I haven't. The truth is, I have not asked for donations since April, um, and we're still being taken care of. And so again, I want to say this, I'm not asking. I'm just saying thank you for those who have decided to support. Thank you so much. I'm just like grateful you're making this happen. We've, we've in this year, we've got a, a new um, uh, assistant. I actually hired someone for Bible Thinker. And so Sarah Zimmerman is like my actual assistant, hoping to move her to full time over the next year. And the Lord's totally providing and taking care of us. And it's allowing me to continue doing things like this passion project and other things in the future. I'm going to keep trying to put out at least two videos a week of real solid stuff that I hope is a, a huge blessing, has a massive impact in your life and the lives of those around you, helping you learn how to think biblically about everything because I, the, you can't <clears throat> overstate the value of that. You just can't. You just can't. It's health to your soul, life to your bones, right? Read Psalm 119, man. Mm. The word of God is good. It's sweeter than honey. And so I'm very happy about that. And so thank you. Thank you. I'm just... Uh, I'm just stalling now. I guess I'm just having fun with you guys. Didn't want to leave. <laughs> so thanks for joining. Lord bless you guys. Have a great day and uh, Merry Christmas. I will see you. I don't know. I guess you'll see me pre-recorded a couple times before the new year. But January 1st is the next Friday live stream. I will be doing one on January 1st. All right. That is all. Take care. <laughs>